Well, good morning, everyone. Great to be together with you today. If I haven't had the chance to meet you, my name is John. I serve as lead pastor here. And as we come to God's word, I'd like to invite you to bow bow with me for a moment of prayer. You are my portion, Lord. I promised to obey your words. I have sought your face with all my heart. Be gracious to me according to your promise. I've considered my ways and have turned my steps towards your statutes. I will hasten and not delay to obey your commands. I'm a friend to all who fear you, to all who follow your precepts. The earth is filled with your love, Lord. Teach me your decrees. Lord, this morning we do echo this prayer in our own hearts. We come to you, Lord, our portion. You are enough for us. And we ask that you would teach us your decrees. Teach us to love and to treasure and to cherish and obey your instruction. Believing that it is good for us that you love us, and that it will lead to life and flourishing. Help us, Lord, to see and understand this passage just before us this morning rightly. We ask that you would illuminate what's in the passage, that you would help us to see Jesus clearly, and that you would have us leave here today as people who are more deeply in love with him and with your instruction. We ask it all in his name. And all God's people said, Amen. We have all been through moments of life uh, or through seasons of life that feel like a wilderness. We've all been through seasons of life that feel something like a barren wasteland. We could experience these seasons individually. We could experience those seasons as maybe as a family unit, as a nuclear family. We could experience those seasons even maybe as a church family. And we can certainly experience seasons of wilderness as a nation and as an entire global family. I think if we were all to look over the past uh, year or so, I think we would all agree that, yeah, it's felt like we've been walking through a barren wasteland of a year. And we've experienced this not just in our own country, but also globally. And so we all experience these wilderness moments. And I'm sure that there are some of you here today who are in the midst of walking through a season that feels like a wilderness. And for some of you, it may be a wilderness uh, that's a relational kind of wilderness. Maybe in your marriage, your relationship with your children or your parents or somebody else that's really close to you. You may feel like you are in a wilderness of uh, a, sort of a, a spiritual wilderness. You may feel disconnected from God. You may feel distant from Him. You may uh, feel something of what, uh, what, what somebody has once called the dark night of the soul, You feel like you're doing all of the right things externally, and yet you feel uh, little or nothing on the inside as you do it, and you feel like you're walking through a spiritual wasteland. For some of you, uh, you're experiencing this in uh, in a physical way. Your physical health, your bodies are getting old, your bodies are breaking down, and you don't have to be old for this to be true of you, by the way. Your bodies can break down when you're young, too, and it can feel like you're living in the midst of a wasteland physically. You might feel this way uh, emotionally or psychologically. You may carry with you uh, some amount of discouragement. 
a constant sense of uh, maybe anxiety or depression. Maybe you've personally experienced some sort of trauma in your life, and you're even now trying to wrestle with and figure out all the ways that that trauma has shaped you and made you into the person that you are today. And it can feel like a wasteland. And we could list a number of different other ways that, that, that we can experience these wilderness moments. And nobody likes being there, right? Nobody likes being in the wilderness. It's difficult, it's painful, it's discouraging. And it's in those moments that we find ourselves saying to ourselves, God, where are you? God, what are you doing? God, I'm, I'm trying to understand how this all works together and I can't quite put it, put it all together. What's true of every single person in this room is that either you have been through a wilderness season or you're going through one right now or you will go through one in the future. There's nobody who's exempt from experiencing life in the wilderness. And I know that there's some of you here today who are in the midst of what feels like the wasteland. And the good news for you and the good news for all of us is what we see in the passage here today as we look at these next three weeks looking at God's people in the midst of the wilderness, in the midst of sort of this barren wasteland of an existence, what we see is that God has a purpose in our wilderness. God has a purpose for us as he leads us into the wilderness and as he leads us through the wilderness, God has a purpose in that. In other words, in the midst of the wilderness, even in the wilderness, God is still actively working for our good. And he will never waste our wilderness. We may squander it. We may waste it. But God never will. And so the good news this morning that we see is that God has a purpose in leading us into and through these wilderness moments. And the purpose is this. Let's just sort of think about this from, just look at these next three weeks and what we see sort of broadly is this. What we see is that God is training his people for faith and obedience. That's what God is doing by leading us into and leading us through the wilderness. He's training his people for faith and obedience. So let's look at this passage in the book of Exodus chapter 15 and see this for ourselves. So let's pick up the story in verse 22 where the text says, Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea and they went to the desert of Shur. For there they traveled in the desert without finding water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink its water because it was bitter. That's why the place is called Marah. So the people grumbled against Moses, saying, what are we to drink? So let's just remind ourselves of where we are in the story here. Uh, The author sort of gives us a clue at this. Moses has just led the people of Israel from the Red Sea. And they make it less than three days before they start grumbling and complaining about how they don't have water. Now, this should, we should notice the irony of this, okay? God has literally just did a miracle with water. He's parted the waters of the Red Sea. The people have walked through on dry land. The army of Pharaoh goes into the water, into where the water should be, and God closes it in over them, and Pharaoh and his army are destroyed. So God has just led his people out of Egypt, out of the realm of, out of the land of the dead, out of the realm of death, and defeated their greatest enemy, and it's less than three days later, and they're facing this crisis of, we don't have any water. And at this moment in their history, the, the people of God here do not have the spiritual muscle memory to look at their situation and say, you know, we've seen God do miracles with water before. I don't know, like three days ago, <laughs> right? You would think that they would be able to see this, and, they, and in that moment, they would say, we've seen God do miracles with water so we can trust him. But that's not what we see. The people grumble and they complain. 
Now, this, this is the pattern that we see this week and in the next two, two uh, accounts that are written in the book of Exodus here is this same exact pattern that the people experience difficulty, they experience trouble, they experience challenge or opposition, and they grumble and complain. Now, the essence of what's happening here is, is this. Their grumbling is the overflow of a heart that is filled with discontent. That's what we see in God's people here. The, the grumbling that they do against Moses and against Aaron is the overflow of a heart that is filled with discontent. Now, this passage that we're looking at here today is, in some ways, we can look at it, it's like a snapshot for us, right? It's like a, it's like a, um, it's a, like a photograph. It's just sort of a still frame of this is what happened in the history of the life of God's people. But we know that it's not just a photograph. It's not just some sort of snapshot for us. We know from the way that the Bible looks at this and talks about it in this moment that this is a mirror as well as a photograph. That we, thousands of years later, are supposed to look at what happens in this passage and we are supposed to see ourselves in it. We know this is true because generations after this moment happened, generations after these events, the psalm writer of Psalm 95 says, today if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as they did in the wilderness, though they had seen what I did. So generations later, the psalmist is, is writing to the people and the people are confessing together as they read this psalm, we are capable of doing the exact same thing we see the Israelites doing in this passage. Right? Because how easy is it for us to look at these people and say, oh, how foolish are you? And to look down upon them with an air of sort of superiority and arrogance and say, boy, if I was there, I would have been different. It's very easy to throw rocks at God's people that we see in this passage for how foolish and how slow they are to believe and how hard-hearted they are. And yet we know that this is our story. We too experience difficulty of a variety of different kinds. Maybe relationally, financially, in your vocation, your physical health, your emotional state. It may just be the, as, as Pastor Matt was praying about earlier, just the uh, sort of the sense of, of the culture in which we live is less and less Christianized. The values and the assumption and the worldview of the people around us increasingly no longer reflects the value system that we see laid out in Scripture. And so there's a certain amount of cultural pressure that comes from that. And so we experience difficulty, we experience opposition in a variety of different ways, and like them, we grumble and we complain. Now what's interesting, what I think is important for us to notice, is that in none of these cases here in the wilderness, the people never complain directly against God. Okay? I think we would, we would be far more likely to see, to look at them and say, oh, we would never do that, if, if they were to experience difficulty and then shake their fist at God and say, God, where are you? How dare you do this to us? But that's not what they do. What they do is they complain and they grumble against Aaron and against Moses. So their grumbling and their complaining is not directed to God himself. It's just grumbling and complaining. Their hearts are overflowing with discontent when they experience difficulty, and when they experience opposition. And we, too, are capable of the exact same thing. How many of us over the last year have found ourselves complaining or grumbling about, I don't know, things like masks, about social distancing, about how dumb it is that we can't have Thanksgiving or Christmas or Easter or any of the stuff that we want to do? 
How many of us have complained and grumbled about how, man, this has just ruined the schedule I had, it's ruined the rhythm I had in my life, and now everything is different, everything is changing, and then it's this person's fault, and it's this person's fault, and if they were just this, and if they were just that, and we grumble and we complain about it. Anybody ever, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand, uh, <laughs> a lot of hands raised, <laughs> but we, we experience difficulty and we grumble and complain, our hearts too overflow with discontent. Think about the cultural pressures that we face. And we think of other people who maybe don't think like us or don't believe like us or who don't want certain things to be true of culture or society and we grumble and we complain about it. We grumble and we complain about them and we demonize and we dehumanize other people. We too grumble and complain just like they did here. And there's numbers of different other ways that we could see this. Now, just to be clear about this, there is... There is a legitimate place for grieving, okay? There's a legitimate place for lamenting and for sort of just venting some of the, like, the frustration and and, and talking about it with people and saying, I just don't understand this. This doesn't make sense to me. Oh, this is so hard. There's a legitimate place for that, okay? So please don't hear me saying, if you've complained about wearing a mask, that you're like God's people here, okay? Uh, I'm not sure that those are always on the same exact level. Okay? There's a legitimate place for it. The Bible actually has a whole category for lament, which is complaint that is directed towards God. <laughs> right? So lament is a good thing. I think one of the problems in this passage is that the people are not lamenting, they're complaining, they're grumbling. They're not bringing their difficulty, they're not bringing their complaint to the Lord in an act of trust, they're complaining. And that's the key difference. And so we look at their situation and we look at our situation, and, and we, we look at this passage, and this is in so many ways a mirror for us of the ways that we too have hearts that overflow with discontent and overflow with grumbling and complaining when we experience difficulty and opposition. So that's the first part of the pattern, is that people experience difficulty and they grumble and they complain, but there's a third part to the pattern, and we see this in all three of the next narratives that are recorded. The third part of the pattern is this. The people face difficulty, the people complain, and God makes miraculous provision. We see it three times in a row. The people grumble, God makes miraculous provision for them. Look in verse 25 at how God does it. Then Moses cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a piece of wood. He threw it into the water, and the water became fit to drink. Okay, that's odd, (laughs) right? Uh, nobody probably would have thought that that would be the way that God would make provision for his people. Right? There's this chunk of wood. Uh, that The actual Hebrew word that's used here is the word tree. So this may be like a dead tree that's fallen over and Moses goes over and kicks it into the water. And all of a sudden this water that was bitter is now all of a sudden drinkable. And nobody would have guessed that this is the way God would provide for his people. And I think that's part of the point of this is that God does it in such a way that nobody can look to it and say, oh, look at what we did. We can take credit for this. No, the way that God does this is in a way that is unmistakable that it is his miraculous provision that he's giving them. So we see him telling Moses to put this chunk of wood, put this tree in the water, and the water becomes clean and the people are able to drink it. Now, I think what we have to recognize at this point in the story is that the point of this story is not primarily about the water, okay? The story is not about the water, This story is secondarily about the water, 
but it's about something different. What we see this passage is doing, what we see God doing here is he's training his people for faith and obedience. That's the primary purpose of this. So look at the second half of verse 25. There the Lord issued a ruling and instruction for them and put them to the test. He said, if you listen carefully to the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes, if you pay attention to his commands and keep all his decrees, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. So you see the people, they're wandering in the desert, they complain, God makes miraculous provision. But the point of all of this is not the water. The key that we need to see here is this. What God ultimately does is provides his instruction for his people. That's what God is doing here. Okay, so verse 25. This is impossible to see because of, uh, the English doesn't have a, a translation that's able to capture this. But in verse 25, then Moses cried out to the Lord and the Lord showed him a piece of wood. Okay, that word showed, that is the Hebrew verb form of the word Torah. So God gives his people his instruction. That's what God is doing here. He instructs Moses what to do with this piece of wood, this tree. And here's what we have to see. The needs of the people were met when they followed the instruction of Yahweh. That's what this passage is about. Do you remember the next major stop on the journey where God's people are headed to next? After Elam, the next major big Mount Sinai. And what is God going to do at Mount Sinai? He's going to give his people his instruction, his Torah, his law. And so what God is doing here is he's training his people for that moment. You see, what happens is the people are in this desperate situation. They don't have any water, and they're, they're freaking out, and they're scared, and they're horrified. And God says, sort of, this is like a parable. He says to them, if you follow my instruction, your needs will be satisfied. That's what God is training his people for. In this moment, and so we're supposed to see this as God preparing his people for that moment when they stand before him at Mount Sinai and he gives, him, he gives them his instruction and they say, oh yeah, we remember. When we follow the instruction of the Lord, it goes well for us. It leads to our life, it leads to our flourishing, it leads to abundance. And so God is training his people for when they stand before him and receive his covenant law. So that's what this passage is about. It's not primarily about, yeah, he threw a piece of wood in the water and the water became well to drink and wow, wasn't that great. That's important, but it's, it's, it's only important as a parable pointing us to the bigger picture of what God is doing here. He's training his people for faith and obedience. And what we see in this passage is what we see in so many other places throughout scripture that God uses something that is physical to communicate something that is a spiritual reality. Okay, so God uses, he meets these people. Okay, they're fleshy, human being type people. And their bodies hunger. And their bodies thirst. Right, the, the hunger pangs, that's the thing you feel viscerally in your gut. The feeling of your tongue sticking to the roof of your mouth because your mouth is so dry. That's a visceral, that's a thing you feel. And God is using that to communicate something to his people. He's using that moment as a training opportunity to help them understand. Because what God is doing, this testing God is doing here, is not, I mean, I've always kind of thought of it like a, uh, when I hear the word testing, it just never has positive connotations, right? It never feels like a good thing. 
It always feels like, okay, there's this like all-powerful God in the sky, and then there's these little fleshy creatures, and he's toying with them, and he's testing them, and he's like, how is that fair? And it feels like some sort of cruel experiment. But what God is doing here by training them in the wilderness, which is what that word testing here is all about, God is training his people in the same way that somebody would train, uh, uh, would strength train to become an athlete, in the same way that somebody would endurance train to become a marathon runner. That's the kind of training. It's, it's God is, is, is enabling them to become proficient at something. And he's causing them to become proficient at faith and obedience by putting them in this wilderness moment. And so God uses this, the, the, the physical nature of it all, to communicate a spiritual reality. And just like them, our hearts are not inclined towards God or his instruction. In our natural selves, our hearts are not inclined to love God. With our whole heart, with our whole mind, with our whole strength, our hearts are not inclined to love God naturally without his divine intervention. And that puts us in a far more desperate place than wandering through the wilderness with no water. Do you understand that? Also, God shows mercy to his people here and he satisfies their needs when they follow his instruction. And so not only do we get this sense of our hearts are not inclined towards God and that puts us in a far more desperate place than being in the wilderness without water, the, 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 the soul-satisfying feeling of those people drinking that water, what God is communicating to them is my instruction is better than even that. There's a deeper kind of nourishment, a deeper kind of thirst is met with inside of you when you follow my instruction than when you get water in the middle of the desert. And so God is using this physical reality to communicate a deeper spiritual reality. And I think what's important for us to, to recognize here is that it is in the midst of the wilderness. They're walking through the desert and God is still showing them evidence of his faithfulness and his care. They're walking through the, de through the desert and God is still actively, even in those moments. Do you think that as they were walking through the desert, do you think they felt the loving presence of a faithful God? Probably not. In fact, we know that they didn't. We know that they, they, they failed the test. Essentially, we know that they missed the point of all this. They were the generation that because of their disobedience, God said, you will not enter the, wild, enter the promised land. You're all going to die in the wilderness. And your kids are going to go in the promised land instead of you. Because their hearts were hardened. Their hearts were rebellious. Their hearts did not trust God. But even in the midst of the wilderness, God is continually showing them these evidences of his faithfulness and his loving care. Even if they don't see it, God is still showing it to them. And it's because of their habitual disobedience that they're not allowed to enter the land of Canaan. And so the question for us, when we experience those seasons that feel like a wasteland, when it feels like a desert, do we have eyes to see? Is that true of us? Do, do we, are we able, are we capable of looking at our circumstances even in the midst of severe difficulty, even in the midst of circumstances that feel challenging, that feel hard, that feel discouraging? Are we able to look around us and see the evidences that God has placed around us of his faithfulness and his ongoing love and his care for us? Are we able to see that? 
Or will we repeat the same thing that they repeated in the wilderness? And will our hearts become hardened towards God? And will we grumble and complain? This is not exactly a flattering picture of God's people here, is it? <laughs> not even a little. And it, and it doesn't get any better than this, really. I mean, there, there, there's little blips. There's little moments in the story where it's like, hey, God's people did something really cool. Hey, they, they obeyed God. Hey, they, uh, they did what they ought to have done. There's moments like that, but by and large, the, the entire story of Israel throughout the Old Testament is that they can't seem to pull it together. They can't seem to pull it together, and they're not obedient to God. They're not faithful to him. They've broken the covenant. They're unfaithful to him. That's the story of Israel, which leads us to the place of, of saying, okay, God has entered into relationship, into, into a kind of partnership with these people. And so God is using these people to bring about his purposes in the world. He's restoring the, the, the blessing that was existent in creation. God is, is putting that back into the world, and he's supposedly doing it through these people, but they continually fail time and time and time and time again. And so the question that we're left with is, okay, what's God going to do? What's God going to do if you have all these people who are faithless, who are disobedient? What is God going to do? Well, we know what God does because we have the rest of the story of Scripture, which tells us about God sending us his son, Jesus. Now, the people in the wilderness, they grumbled, they complained. They were not an example of faith and obedience in the wilderness. They failed miserably. But then you fast forward to the person of Jesus, and what, what is the first thing that Jesus does after he's commissioned by God and called into his earthly ministry? Where does he go? He goes in the wilderness. And you see, Jesus, God's son, was, he also went through a season of testing in the wilderness. And in every single way where the people of God failed in the Old Testament, in all those ways, Jesus was victorious. Jesus was faithful. Jesus was obedient. Jesus fully loved God with his whole heart, mind, and strength. He loved his neighbor as himself. He was he, he embodied everything that the nation of Israel was supposed to embody but never could embody. And he lived that. And he went through that wilderness moment as well. And in the same way that we would look at Exodus 15 and we would say, who would have thought that God's miraculous deliverance, that his provision would come through kicking a piece of tree into the water? Who would have thought it would have looked like this? Who would have thought that God's provision for his people would have come through a tree? And then we come to the end of Jesus' earthly ministry. And the same question still applies. Jesus has come to be the one who's going to put the world back to right again. He's going to defeat sin. He's going to defeat death. He's going to conquer the enemies of God. And he does it by dying on a tree. And we look at that situation and we see and we ask, how in the world is it that this is God's plan? This is God's plan for the restoration and the, the renewal of all things is his, his son being executed as a criminal on a tree. That's God's plan. But that's the good news is that this is God's plan. Which shows us as, as, we, as we walk through our seasons of wilderness, 
what we can say with confidence is we don't know, we don't understand, we don't see right now how it all fits together, and yet what we do know is that God loves us. We know what our wilderness moments cannot mean. They cannot mean that God doesn't love us because he has already demonstrated that to us by sending his son. He was willing to spare even his own son, and if he was willing to spare him, how much more will he give us all things? So because God was generous and gave us his very son, we know what our wilderness moments cannot mean. And so in the midst of the wilderness, we can say, okay, Lord, I don't understand it, I don't see it, but I know that you are good, I know that you love me, that's been demonstrated, that has been done already in the cross of Jesus. And so I can trust you, I can surrender to you, and I can live in obedience, even in the midst of the wilderness when I don't see it, when I don't understand it, when it doesn't make any sense. Because God has demonstrated his love for us already. God still uses physical elements to communicate a deeper spiritual reality for us. We, we see that each week as we come forward to receive communion. We see that God takes this little piece of bread and this little cup of juice and, and communicates something to us that is uh, of, of a deep spiritual significance. One of the things that's communicated to us as we come forward to receive the body and blood of Jesus is we have been disobedient. God had to send his son for us because we've not been faithful. But the good news is that God has sent us his son and that even in the midst of our faithlessness, God is faithful to us. And so those, those physical elements in the same way that they did in the book of Exodus, they communicate something of a deeper spiritual reality for us even today. And so as we come to the Lord's table today, I want to invite you just to take a moment of uh, confession and reflection, and then we will um, continue together. Merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you by our thoughts and our words and our deeds, by the things that we have done, as well as by the things that we have left undone. We confess, Lord, that like the people we see here in the wilderness, we have not loved you with our whole heart, with our whole mind, with our whole strength, and we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. Lord, forgive us for the ways that as we travel through our wilderness journeys, Forgive us for the ways that we act out of faithlessness. Lord, forgive us for the ways that we live in a kind of uh, willful self-pity. Lord, forgive us for the ways that we are blind to your abundant provision for us, for the ways that you demonstrate your faithfulness and your care for us, even in the midst of the wilderness. Lord, forgive us the, for the times when our 
grieving and when our lamenting crosses the line into grumbling and complaining. Sometimes, Lord, we don't know where that line is. And yet, a lot of times we know when we've crossed it. So, Lord, forgive us for the ways that we have been people who grumble and complain. We ask that in your mercy that you would forgive what we have been, that you would help us amend what we are, and that you would direct what we shall be so that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name. And all God's people said, Amen.